where we've spent the last number of days exploring concentration practice. And we've listened the last number of nights to very uplifting, uh, transcendent, liberating aspects of the Dharma, the supramundane. And now, this evening, I'm bringing us back into the mundane. We're returning to our lives. And so I'd like to be moving to the top of the page a little bit to talk about some of the ways we can use the Eightfold Path in our lives. And maybe we can, um, as I begin, just bring your attention to your body without closing your eyes. Just notice what it's like to inhabit this body. What's the energy like in the body after talking a little, reading a little, and just to be aware of that. See if you can sustain your attention gently with the breath and with the body as I talk. What's that like? What's the activity of the mind like? What's the mind doing? What's it thinking about? Is it wanting something to happen or wanting something to stop happening? And what's the heart like? Is it a heart that's a little feeling fragile and vulnerable? Or is it a heart that's full of excitement and open? So just to know that and to notice how that changes as I talk. We've secluded ourselves in order to see how our mind works. And now we're coming out of seclusion. And already, as some of you were saying this morning, things are speeding up and rushing in, plans, ideas. So now it's our task to kind of navigate all that. It was hard enough dealing with the eight worldly winds here. And the eight worldly winds are going to move a little more quickly as we leave and change a little more quickly. So this is a transition period. And some of us have been um, feeling very open today. Some of us have been feeling very vulnerable. We all end the retreat in different places. And so it's helpful to acknowledge that. Sometimes we can end a retreat feeling bright and open and spacious and clear. And I've had that happen. And I've gone into my office the next day and sat there and gazed at my patients and seen, <laughs> and seen the divine Buddha nature <laughs> and have no interest at all in the content of their story. <laughs> and the waiting room gets fuller. <laughs> and it's not very functional. <laughs> so we need to have a little... Um, awareness of suitability, of how to weave our experiences into our lives. Sometimes we can end a retreat feeling very vulnerable and tender and soft. And even the idea of going into Whole Foods is horrendous. (laughs) The amount of stimuli, the decisions that have to be made. (laughs) Even getting out of the car can be difficult. And we can notice the energy in our body shift as we do all those things. And so I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about some qualities that can help us integrate the value of our concentration practice and support and keep our practice alive in our lives 
and in the world. And also to see how they've impacted how we live our lives in the world. So one of the ways I'll begin is to talk a little bit about intention. Because intention is what links the wise understandings that we've had on retreat, our insights, through our practice into our action in the world. It's kind of that link point. And on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, he saw that there were two kinds of thoughts. There were thoughts that led to beneficial speech and action and led to happiness in the world. And there were thoughts that led to harmful speech and action in the world. And intention was what linked the thoughts with the speech. And that's why he said, intention, I tell you, is karma. It can set happiness or suffering in motion. Intention itself is neutral. What the determining factor is, is the motivation behind it. Is it coming from wise understanding or is it coming from wrong understanding? And you'll notice when we slow down enough that there are many, many intentions or, first of all, impulses happening in our minds. And that slows down when we're secluded so we can actually see those about-to moments the about to reach for a cup of tea, the about to open a door. Sometimes we can see the impulses that don't even get into an intention. They just flitter across. Um, I remember leaving a retreat once and having a very long wait in the airport and walking through, and I saw all the impulses as I walked, as all the sense doors were receiving all this information. Ice cream, massage, buy a book, um, all the possible places intention could go. But the mind was slowed enough that I could see them. Usually it happens so quickly that we don't pick it up. It's like a flow. Intention is really like an electrical current. And what's, what's important about that is that we can stop it at any moment. And you see that even when you're drinking a cup of tea. If you stop making the intention to drink, you stop. If you stop making the intention to walk, you stop. In order for there to be an outcome of a particular intention, you have to keep making it. Someone asked an intention this mo- about intention this morning, making an intention and then that not happening. And it's just like our practice where we've had the intention to be with the breath and then we forget about it. We have to keep making that intention and connecting and sustaining over and over. So if we want it to come about, the mind has to keep making that intention. There's the continuity of connecting and sustaining. And it has a very powerful impact on our lives because it's where we incline our mind. And the Buddha saw that if we incline our mind in a direction of of benefit, then that's what will unfold. And so we've been training our minds in this amazing possibility of choice about where we incline it. That's what Sally was talking about last night. We start to see that there's a choice. We can stop inclining down unuseful direct in destinations. We start to have more of an option. Aspects of wise intention 
uh, renunciation is one I'll talk about in a few minutes. But the other um, large part of intention are the four Brahma-viharas, the divine attitudes of mind. They're all intention practices. Um, the Buddha said in, men, in several different suttas, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing earth with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, compassion, gladness, equanimity. I will abide. And they each have a slightly different motivation. Metta, that we've been doing a little practice here, has the motivation or the attitude, the, the texture of caring, of friendliness, sorry, of friendliness. And it's that um, being present um, and um, being present with full attention, of caring for beings deeply. Compassion has the texture of caring, of connecting with others in pain, and being present without resistance. Gladness has the, um, gladness, mudita, has the texture of gladness, of delight, finding happiness in the joy of others, and of being present with contentment. And then balance, equanimity, upeka, um, the texture of balance, of being present with things as they are without reactivity. And each of them are antidotes. Friendliness is the antidote to ill will. Compassion, the antidote to cruelty or harmfulness. Mudita, the antidote to discontent and envy. And equanimity to partiality, reactivity. And thus this last one balances all the previous three. So there are powerful intentions that undo our selfish motivation. We're no longer practicing just for ourselves, but for the benefit of everyone. They kind of um, affect the way we live our lives and dissolve the barriers of separation that we have within our own hearts and with others. And they also grow out of our mindfulness and our concentration practice naturally, as you've seen, because as the hindrances start to dissipate, the, the, the natural state, the unity of our mind is revealed, and its inherent state is one of friendliness, caring, joy, equanimity. But as one of my teachers said, in daily life, Spontaneous arisings of unconditional love and acceptance are too sporadic to be relied on. So we need to cultivate them intentionally. And when we say, I will abide, or may I be safe, it's not an asking permission, may I please be safe, or um, a request for goodies from the guru. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? It's a very different kind of may I. It's an aligning ourselves with our will. It's this clear, impeccable determination to turn our mind in this direction. And it's a very, there's a purity in that, turning our mind towards these boundless qualities that bring a sense of ease, security, fearlessness into our lives 
And as I said, they loosen the barriers of separation. Very important to our practice. It's metta is that unconditional friendliness to all of our experience, to whatever arises in our lives, on retreat, in our meditation practice, in the conditions, in the mind states, to everything without acceptance. And if our practice in our life can be permeated with it, um, it brings a warmth and a connection. And we see at the beginning of the retreat, we talked about um, how non-harming is a crucial foundation for our concentration practice. It's also a crucial foundation for our lives. The first part of the Metta Sutta, the Buddhist teachings on loving-kindness, are all about protection, living in our, our lives in a way that creates safety and well-being. The Sutta advises us to be contented and easily satisfied. That's a big one in our lives. The one that affects me the most, um, which is why I repeat the sutta on a regular basis, to be unburdened with duties and frugal in our ways. Simplify. That can this moment be enough? And then wishing in gladness and safety that all beings be at ease and that none through through ill will wish harm upon another so we're free from hatred and ill will so we're giving the gift of fearlessness and security to ourselves to each other and it was originally taught metta as an antidote to fear a refuge and a safe harbor from all the torments of our minds someone once asked the time teacher, master, Buddha Dasa, how people from the West should practice, especially people who had the inner wounds of self-hatred and abuse and self-doubt. How should they practice? And he said, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principle of metta. They should be taken out into nature, beautiful forests, mountains, and they should stay there long enough to realize that they too are part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony in all life and their proper place amidst all things. So this attitude of goodwill is a powerful antidote to discouragement and judgment. As we've said over and over, when we dwell on what's wrong, on faults with ourselves, our practice, our partners, the world, the mind gets dragged down and it's discouraging. And metta shifts where the mind dwells, so it's lighter and less sticky. And we've seen that when our concentration practice was accompanied by harshness, it was very unpleasant and a lot of dukkha. And when we bring in this quality of non-aversion, there's a lightness that happens and an ease. And so we can learn how to use it in our lives. That quality of friendship, of being our own best friend, is very refreshing. We can soften and accept the way things are. 
And when we're really in difficulty, we're standing by ourselves rather than turning on ourselves even more. One of my friends and colleagues, Irina Weissman, says, I'm here for you, honey, when she's in difficulty. You're a good friend to have. And it helps us stay afloat in difficult times when we hold our difficulties in a light of friendliness rather than trying to get rid of them. It's very healing. And both metta practice and our concentration practice have this quality of purification, of bringing up to the surface unresolved issues, difficulties, all the things that we don't want to look at. Sometimes we can come to the end of a retreat and have a lot of comparing mind. We've heard about the blissful states we think that other people are having and that are described in the talks. And maybe we've had days when there have been really difficult states coming up and we get to the end of a retreat and we evaluate that. And we forget how much healing there comes from allowing these things to be seen with kindness, that there's a transformation and a healing. Someone said, mindfulness plus wisdom is a program that debugs the defilements. And in doing that, the defilements get loosened and they move through. And if we can be with them in a way that allows release, it's freeing, it's healing. And our mindfulness helps us stay with, be able to stand under, as Philip was talking about the other night, so we can actually be with the suffering, be with the difficulty as it's there and of fully allow it. And it's metta that helps us fully allow it. And as we're doing that, as we're being with it fully, compassion naturally arises. And there's this caring for ourselves. Even if we're not doing metta practice in our daily lives, we can still have this intention to bring friend, make our friendliness to ourselves continuous, to have it in the background all of the time, and to keep renewing that intention, to keep it moving through our lives. Even occasionally, once in a while, once a day would be even better, Every time you go in the bathroom, when you look in the mirror, just to notice, is the heart open or closed? And just to say, may this being be well today. Very simple. Rather than when you look in the mirror, see the wrinkles, or whatever it is you happen to see. So just that quality of friendliness to ourselves all the time. Metta also, and all the Brahma-viharas, are concentration practices in their own right, and they can be used as a basis for cultivating wisdom and insight, and be liberating. There's a story that I like from the suttas, um, and it goes like this. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling amongst the Kalyans, and he was staying in this town, and in the morning a number of the bhikkhus decided to go on alms rounds. So they took their bowls and they went into the town, and they found a park 
where there were lots of wanderers of other sects visiting there. And they exchanged greetings and they sat down and the wanderers said to them, friends, isn't it true that the ascetic Gautama teaches the Dharma to his disciples thus? Come, abandon the five hindrances, the corruptions of the mind that weaken wisdom, and dwell pervading with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. And the same with compassion, gladness, equanimity. Isn't it true that the Blessed One teaches that? And then he said, well, we too teach the Dharma to our disciples in this exactly the same way. We say, come, abandon the hindrances. Dwell pervading with a mind imbued with loving kindness, compassion. And so the bhikkhus heard all this, and they neither delighted nor rejected the statement of the wanderers. But they went back to the Blessed One, and they told him about it, and they said, they told him all the details, and they listened to his response. And he said, Friends, how is liberation of the mind by loving kindness developed? What is its destination, its culmination, its fruit, its goal? How is it developed by compassion, equanimity, and so forth? If you were to ask those wanderers that, they wouldn't be able to reply. They would meet with vexation. Why? Because it's not within their domain. They don't understand. There is no one in this world who could, other than the Tathagata, who can give you the answer to these questions. So then he goes on to explain. How is the liberation of the mind developed by loving kindness? And what is its destination, its goal? Here, a bhikkhu develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness accompanied by loving kindness. And he goes through all of the seven factors of enlightenment, each one imbued with loving kindness, all of them. And when he does this, based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, he will mature into release. So all the, the path that we, you were hearing the last few days, that imba- imbued with loving kindness and with all the Brahma Vihara, all those qualities, brings liberation. And so he was combining the seven factors of enlightenment. And we can do that in our practice too. We can infuse however we practice with these beautiful qualities. Because they open the heart, they enable the wisdom to sink in. And they also help us develop a trust that's not experienced in the wanting mind, a trust that doesn't grasp of things to be different from how they are. So the next of these qualities, wise intentions, is renunciation. That's that power of turning away from the habit patterns of greed, hatred, delusion. And that's what we've been practicing as we've been sitting here these days. We've been turning our minds away from all the distractions. 
over and over, connecting, sustaining with the breath, turning away from everything but the breath. We've been building this ability to release, to renounce, as we've, as we've worked here. Our letting go muscle has been developing. We're able to turn the mind away. Concentration gives us that stability that it starts to happen spontaneously. But as we return to the world, and even thinking about returning to the world, we see how powerful and how deeply ingrained these habits are, and what tremendous courage and commitment it takes to work with them. I found it helpful, actually, um, when I realized how difficult this is, to um, understand some of the brain studies, because it Um, some of them show that there are certain habitual patterns, particularly ones that form when we're very young and that have come from an intense experience. When they come from an intense experience, the hindbrain is involved. And it does that for survival value. And so the cortex isn't really involved at all. And the value of that is that if you're in in a hunter or gatherer, and someone in the tribe shouts, lion, you immediately run. You don't stand there sort of perseverating about the prevalence and and, um, wandering habits of lions in that particular area. Um, You shortcut that. And in the same way, there are things in our lives that shortcut any thought. It happens so fast. And so it's it's asking too much to expect that we'll be able to um, easily shift those habits. When we're on retreat, we start to see them a little bit, how quickly they move, how suddenly the mind grasps onto it. And it helps to know that and to have respect for how deeply ingrained they are. And if you remember, um, the the first two of the right efforts are avoiding and abandoning. So we learn how to avoid situations that we know are particularly triggering for us, where that kind of um, really fast response is going to be there. And it also helps to have had the experience on retreat when wisdom and concentration are really there to experience that relinquishing. And to see that when we're holding on, it's suffering. And what we're really relinquishing is suffering. It's not so much what we are attached to that we're relinquishing, it's just dukkha that we're relinquishing. But when our concentration isn't very strong, it's hard to believe that giving up our habit patterns will lead to joy. And it isn't about repression. It's more about releasing or acknowledging what attachment is like. The rewards of renunciation are that we stop filling our lives with things that call on our attention. There's a sense of releasing, and it frees the energy and it makes that energy available rather than being caught up in holding on. Whatever it is that we're holding on to, whatever it is we're renouncing, whether it's our preferences, what we feel we have to have, 
the need for approval, the need for getting it right, for being enough or having enough, all the concepts about ourselves. Renunciation is the deepest kindness to ourselves, and it fosters a mind of non-clinging. And so we can work with it by just asking ourselves, is this going in a direction that I want? What am I connecting and sustaining to? And is this going to be of benefit? My um, son, who is a young adult now and hasn't been living at home, came home to live with me for the summer um, while he was saving some money to go back to college. And he had a job where he had to get up really early in the morning at six. And so for a little while, he was staying up till about two watching movies and then complaining about how wrecked he felt during the day. (laughs) And I wasn't about to get into being a parent. I didn't want that kind of relationship. And he's a little, he sat a few retreats. So one night I went down about midnight and he was watching a movie. And I said, is this movie a really interesting movie? Is it really good? No. What, is the acting really good? No. Is the plot good? No. Is this heading in a useful direction? (laughs) And then I left. (laughs) And a little while, after a few minutes, I heard him go to bed. (laughs) But he needed the reminder, is this going in a useful direction? He was hooked. And all of us know how easy it is to get hooked. A few days later, I was supposed to be working on a project I'm involved in. He came into the room, and I was doing killer Sudoku. (laughs) And so he said, is this going in a useful direction? (laughs) And so we start to see how easy it is to get hooked and how compelling it is. And what I notice is sometimes that about-to moment moment, maybe there's a little bit of dis- discomfort in whatever it is, and so then we get hooked, or whatever it is. And just that reminder, is this what I want to be doing right now? Some thoughts are not harmful at all, but they're just not really, and we, we've had, you've had lots of thoughts that weren't harmful, but that were pretty repetitive and not really going in a particularly useful direction. We don't have to do that. We can just come back and connect again. When we have some concentration, um, which of course many of us have had at different times, everyone's had concentration at different times, this retreat of different levels. And the stronger the concentration is, the easier it is for the thoughts to dissipate and dissolve and move away. The mind isn't as sticky the mind states are just moving through. It's as though the fist that Steve was talking about spontaneously opens, and there's clarity there. But when we're in our everyday lives and there's an ordinary concentration there, it's much harder to open the fist, and our Teflon mind turns to Velcro mind, and it's sticky. However, I've found that the Wisdom from insights into the three characteristics are really helpful because even if it's in this moment that we can't let go, we can remind ourselves this is not permanent and it's not personal. And holding on is dukkha. I was on a retreat um, earlier this year 
where um, I had a, a very clear um, few days and I was really aware of their rising and passing and I could, it was very clear to me um, all these stories are fabricated and I could see how certain mind states fed the hindrances certain mind states fed the enlightenment factors it was really clear and it was wonderful to see that and after one of these sittings I felt like oh I don't ever have to be afraid of my mind again I don't have to believe it again. I know it's all garbage. It's clear. And then about two hours later, there I was, completely caught believing a mind state again. And I thought, wow, look at that. The mind state of believing mind states has arisen. (laughs) And that was the important piece. Just to know um, that each of them has an arising and passing. And so now when I'm caught in my life, and I see that I'm stuck in something, it's just, oh, this mind state has arisen. Sometimes I get it as it's arising, but not often. But just using that little mental note, um, self-judgment has arisen, or whatever it happens to be, or fear has arisen, reminds me that it's not permanent and it's not personal. And I stop taking it so seriously and stop believing the stories. And there's freedom. So it's, as Ajahn Sumedho says, it's knowing but not owning. So we start to know what our mind is doing, but not having to own it. And we see that continuing to believe it is dukkha. And it's it's funny, it's like somehow when, when we're caught in it, we think that because a thought has arisen, it must be true. If I'm thinking this, I should believe it. You know, that mind state arises. And so to notice, what story am I believing right now? Is it really true? So it can be disconcerting when all the habits come back in. When the concentration and mindfulness and um, effort are weak, we get involved in the content and stories again. But there's no need to judge. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha teaches, a bhikkhu should know, is it a mind that's concentrated or is it a mind that's not concentrated? All you have to do is know, is there mindfulness here or not? No judgment about it, it's present or not present. And if it's not there, if there's no mindfulness and there's no concentration and you haven't, you're not able to put any effort in, then you can know, well, my capacity's not very great right now to deal with a difficult situation. So we, have, we stop having the expectation of being able, to, being able to work with it. And then we, we, can, we can remember to, bring, to use our tools, but we don't start judging ourselves. We just acknowledge, I don't have the capacity right now. And then we can start bringing in our right mindfulness, right effort, and right concentration to keep us in the present moment so mindfulness can do the work of sorting things out, of bringing a little clarity. And we talked at the very beginning of the, re- of the retreat um, about all the different tools of mindfulness. Sorry, all the different tools that we can use and the different objects for mindfulness. There were 40 different objects for concentration practice. The value of the breath is that it's always with us 
It's always there. And it keeps us in the present moment, sorry, and it can help bring us into the present moment at any time. We can use the breath anywhere. That's the value of it. It's so easy to tune into. And simply pausing and connecting with the breath can interrupt the habitual tendencies. Whenever we connect with the breath, in that moment, we're letting the thoughts go. We're creating a gap, even if it's a very small gap. We can also use sound, use our body, use metta, loving kindness. There's many different things we can use to help us connect into the present moment. And in that t- at that time, there's a possibility of being in the stillness when the space isn't filled with all our discursive thoughts, worries, obsessions, the story of me. It's so easy to get caught up in the minutiae of every day's life and in um, all the stuff that we're doing. So we can make an intention to connect with the breath many times a day. Not just once in a while, but it's the continuity that helps. Sometimes on retreat, it's very intense. We're connecting, sustaining, connecting, sustaining, and we build momentum. And in our lives, we can still use that connecting and sustaining, even if it's when we're sitting in a car at a traffic light. The traffic light says stop, so you can tell your mind to stop for that moment. Whatever it is that helps you reconnect. That's what builds the continuity of our practice. Connecting to the breath is also a way of connecting to our nervous system, of connecting with our emotions in our body. It's a wonderful gauge of what's happening. When we notice tension, there's a sense of, well, what am I holding on to? In the heart, in the mind, what am I holding on to? And it can tell us that. The breath's more rapid, what emotion is moving through? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I sensing? It's very healing to be with the breath. And we can also use it in our practice. Um, I find in my life, using the first four of the steps of the Anapanasati Sutta, the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, connecting with the breath, just simply knowing that we're breathing in, knowing that we're breathing out. And you don't have to be doing this in deep meditation. It can help just in our in our lives, even not when we're in our sitting practice. In our sitting practice, then we move to the second step, the, the more direct experience of knowing if it's a short breath or a long breath, of the actual direct experience of breathing. And then we can use, we can be aware of the whole breath or the breath as it moves through the body. And then we can bring in calming, breathing in, calming the body, breathing out, calming the body, whenever we're in a a situation of anxiety or agitation or anger or whatever it is. Breathing in, calming the mind, breathing out, calming the mind. And we can use those in a way in our concentration, but we can also use those phrases in our lives.
so we can take the breath out into the world with us. There was one, um, one yogi who um, his friend came to talk to him and he said, I can't talk to you right now, I'm watching my breath. <laughs> and that's not what we're doing. <laughs> we're having a sense of appropriateness about the, the, the level of our mindfulness or the frequency of our mindfulness, so to speak, just as you do on your retreat. You know that you're not... I, I was a pot washer once at, at um, IMS, and I was working with a fellow pot washer who was doing lifting, moving, scrubbing, <laughs> lifting, moving, rinsing. And it drove me bananas. <laughs> and so there's an appropriateness to the frequency of our mindfulness. We can focus on one thing, we can collect and unify the mind and just be 100% in one thing that we're doing. And it's, it's really beautiful to have that level of attention on one thing. And we can also have a broader mindfulness that's not so collected, but that just has the breath in the background, but is aware of other things that we're doing. And we can have it be 10% breath and 90% all these other things. Or we can make it 50-50. You can experiment and see what that's like. To have 50% with the body or the breath and 50% on the activity that you're doing. And just explore what's appropriate in this situation. And notice how how that can affect your capacity to be with things in a non-reactive way. The more there is a little bit of concentration, just enough to collect your mind in from being so dispersed. A little bit of concentration and mindfulness and the effort can really help us stabilize so that we're less reactive in our lives. And we can use those touch points of what am I thinking, what am I sensing, what am I feeling? And remembering our attitudes. Am I wanting something to happen? Am I wanting something to stop happening? In other words, am I resisting the way things are? Or am I allowing the things the way they are? And it's not to judge that, but just to notice how it actually is. And when something really difficult arises, um, some old stuff comes up that you haven't, you thought you were done with, rather than, oh no, how, I don't want this to be happening right now. It's, oh, I'm glad this is happening right now. It's a chance to really be with this in a different way. It's a chance to be with this um, and really incline my mind to a different habit pattern of being with it without reactivity. About a year ago, I had a very difficult family situation where one of my family members was really upset with me. And um, every time I would sit when I was teaching, at some point, this issue would come up. And at first, I don't want to deal with this. But then as I began to stand under it and really be with the, um, and see in an honest way um, and allow the feelings of hurt, the feelings of, of um, regret, and all the difficult feelings to stand under that, slowly it began to shift. I can't even tell you at what point it shifted. Um, but at some point, I noticed when I was back home 
that I was able to be with this person in a completely different way. I was really able to hear their side without the reactivity and speak in a way that they felt clearly understood. And so sometimes, even though I couldn't stop the story, I was being with it and holding it in a different way, with compassion and with acceptance, and coming back as often as I could to the direct experience. And also it helped to um, each time remember the three characteristics and not to, sometimes when we're in a really difficult situation, it feels like this, it will always be this way. And you, everyone knows that from the sittings and from all that's been happening. And we have predictions about how it will be like, as Sally was saying this morning, when we get off retreat. The mind state that we're in right now is how it will be when we go home. <laughs> and so forth. So it helps to remember those, and to remember that the mind does have a natural unity, and that we can use our practice to reconnect with that when we have a balanced and relaxed attitude to our practice, simply sustaining our attention for as much of the day as we can. And that just takes remembering. It's not hard. Just now, as I'm talking, connect, are you connected with your body? Are you aware of the sensations in your body? Are you aware of your breath? Sometimes as you're listening to Dharma talks, there are moments when your mind goes off on some other story. <laughs> the concentration and connection isn't continuous. It's normal. We just keep coming back. And this kind of balanced effort is so helpful. Mindfulness sees when we need a gentle, compassionate acceptance. Life's really challenging right now. And it sees when we're, we need a firmer determination. We're spacing out. We're not using our time. We're not, um, it's like Mary Oliver's words, what do I want to do with this one wild and precious life? Our precious life is trickling away into kill a Sudoku, whatever it is. <laughs> um, so we notice that. And we learn from our experience. It's like the tightrope that we've talked about, when we need to adjust a little bit. Um, and we, we look at our mistakes. Um, I like um, to think of it as a mistake. In other words, I didn't quite read the situation right. So it's, having, it's just knowing that we're just correcting our course a little bit. There is, it's not a wrong experience. And also to remember, um, when Philip was talking about the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha gave the Four Noble Truths as a prescription. And we've all heard the Four Noble Truths, the teaching, many times. And some of us have heard the teachings we've shared with you many times. It's a prescription that the Buddha was giving us. We can walk away with that prescription in our pocket, and we can forget to use it. And sometimes we can even show people the prescription. Isn't this a great prescription that I've been given? <laughs> and then we put it back in our pocket. Or we don't go and fill it at our store of um, practice. The medicine needs to be taken. And it's the kind of medicine that takes time to work. 
It's not like some of the Western medicines where you take them and it's a quick fix. You take your antibiotics for three days and your bladder infection is gone, whatever it is. It's more homeopathic medicine. We're taking it every day, over and over. But we need to keep taking it. In terms of intention, one of the things I've found helpful in my daily practice is to have a few things that I do routinely. And there are five things that you can do at the beginning of a practice period. And I'm always sharing these and I still find them valuable. And the first is to connect with your motivation for practice. And to do this on a daily basis, to connect with your motivation. And then to set an intention, to, in, to incline your mind. It might be that that particular day you're inclining your mind towards, um, towards kindness towards yourself. Or you're inclining your mind towards um, presence. Whatever it is that's for you, where you want to incline your mind. And then to bring in goodwill, always to have the intention for goodwill. And to include gratitude, appreciation, appreciation that you're taking the time, and appreciation for the practice. And then to come to use, I find it very helpful to use something as a concentration practice initially. Something to help collect and unify. Could be the breath, could be metta, could be the body, whatever it is. If my mind's dist- any, a little bit distracted, just to take a few moments to do that before whatever other practices I might decide to do. Just so I know, how am I right now? It helps. What's happening? And so then, another really valuable and wonderful piece is patience. We've been encouraging you to practice with patience here, but it's tremendously helpful to include patience in our daily lives. It's a whole practice in itself, and it includes the aspects of resolve and of constancy. And it includes a kind attention as well, and respect. And very often, working with patience is about noticing our impatience. Our impatience with ourselves, with our practice, with our progress, with what's happening in the world. It's about aligning ourselves with the way things are and with this attitude of just keeping on taking the next step no matter how our practice is unfolding. This is um, what Ajahn Chah has to say about progress in our practice. Our spiritual perfections, or paramis, are not complete. It's like the fruit on a tree. You can't force it to be sweet if it's still unripe. The reason it's small and sour is it hasn't yet finished growing. You can't force it to be bigger, sweeter, riper. You have to let it ripen according to its nature. As time passes, it will grow ripe and sweet all by itself. 
in the same way as time passes, people reach spiritual maturity. And with such an attitude, you can be at ease. But if you're impatient and dissatisfied, if you keep asking, why isn't this mango sweet yet? Why is it still sour? Then what can be done? It's sour because it's not ripe. Likewise, as people's spiritual faculties mature, they develop faith. It's not something we can force. And if you look at it that way, it will be okay. And you can rest in the ripening of your heart. And so that's the invitation here, to rest in the ripening of our hearts. And to know that this process, that we've, this journey that we've all been going on, is continuing. And it will continue to move in different ways as you leave. There will be times when the concentration will, will suddenly out of nowhere appear, some of the states that you've been in. And there'll be times when some of the difficult states will emerge as well. And it takes patience and kindness to be with that as it changes and as it flows. And as the insights start to sink in and start to mature and ripen in our lives. And so we've included concentration, as the Buddha spoke about, in all these different ways as a quality in the Eightfold Path, where it's supported by right effort and right mindfulness, and where it leads to wise understanding. And from that comes wise intention that translates into skillful actions in our lives. We're valuing the stability for the clarity and insight it gives us, so that we can go out into the world and be of benefit to ourselves and everyone else. And we explored concentration as one of the factors, seven factors of enlightenment, and looked at how to balance those qualities, how we can sometimes in our lives there's not enough energy, and we need to be kind to ourselves and respect that, and bring some interest and maybe some joy and appreciation to bring the energy up. Sometimes there's too much energy and we need to do things that will bring calming. So we remember those ways of balancing. And then we remember to watch out for the hindrances. Is this a mind that's full of hindrances or not? Sometimes we're walking around in it and not knowing it a lot of the time. So remembering to notice when they're there and appreciating when the seven factors are there and encouraging them to grow. And then you heard about and explored the transcendent qualities and the possibility of liberation through this path. So I'd like to end with this um, this piece from Mingyur Rinpoche. The best part of all is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique that the Buddha taught generates compassion. Whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desires to be happy, you can't help but see the same desires in others. 
And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger, aversion, you see everyone else around you can feel the same. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between self and other automatically dissolves and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables becomes as natural and as persistent as your own heartbeat. So thank you for your attention.